Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Nat Turney, with my brother, John. And you might be asking yourself right now, why? Why am I talking in this strange radio announcer voice? And so damn loud. I'm not loud, dude. What the hell? Why are you always on? John, Jesus, why are you always picking on me? All right, fine. I'll move away from the... Maybe it was because I was doing that stupid voice. I got really close to the microphone. I don't even know what I'm oh saying anymore. This is, this is not church, though, thank God, or we'd all be in trouble of, you know, some sort of eternal hell for the, for the shenanigans that we pull. But again, my brother John is here. Say hi, John. Hi, John. Hi, John. All right. We, we got to sneak that into at least one episode, or once every episode. But um, we're here today with our friend Brandon Dragon. Let me read you a little bit of something. But we've actually had him on the, on the show before, but he was part of a group of folks who, were, who had contributed to uh, Before You Lose Your Mind, right? Because I know we've I know we've chatted before, but yeah, so yeah, that's the correct. first. I was on with uh, with uh, yeah, I was on with Matthew DeStefano. Right, right. Those other those other guy, that other guy. Okay, so uh, this is the first time we've had Brandon <laughs> on by himself. <laughs> yeah, it's great if I just talk shit about Matt. He likes that. He enjoys oh, if yeah. uh, you know yep. if he comes up at least once or twice in a conversation. So um, is, if we is say, is there any other way to talk about Matt? No, there's no, no other way. Not Maybe. really. No. No, pretty much anytime you talk just about that, you talking shit. So that's that's just the way it rolls. <laughs> <laughs> Let me read this real quick before I uh, before I completely lose the plot here. So Brandon Dragon earned his JD from Belmont University College of Law in Nashville. So whoop, whoop, for the lawyers, um, he won the American Bar Association Journal's 2021 Ross Writing Contest. He draws on a wide range of influences from literature to history to philosophy to craft and meaning. I'm sorry, to craft meaningful and often surprising narratives that challenge the status quo and reach for a deeper understanding of what it means to be human. Brandon and his wife, Jamie, lived in the, live in the Nashville area with their two daughters, Natalie and Brooklyn. He enjoys a good cigar, Irish whiskey, road cycling, and is an avid supporter of Arsenal Football Club. Well, up until that last bit, I was tracking with you, but really, Arsenal? Oh, come on now. I, I, I say that like I know a damn thing about soccer. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> My, my, knowledge of, my knowledge of soccer ends in like the sixth grade where I was literally cut from the soccer team. <laughs> I didn't even know that was possible. The soccer team that everyone gets to play on? Yeah, I didn't even know it was possible to get cut from a soccer team in the sixth grade. So you're talking to someone who's like apparently super athletic. Yeah, the, the one guy did not get a participation trophy, <laughs> and I've been I've been upset ever since. It's it's yeah. it's it's yeah, it's a yeah, sad I, state of affairs. I know enough about soccer to know that when I see the words football club related to a team name, okay, that's not it's it's it's, yeah. it's European football, proper and that's pretty much where it begins. Like it's it. proper, yes, proper football <laughs> as opposed to whatever bastardized version we play here in in the Americas, but. Aside from all that, welcome to the show, man. Welcome. We're glad you're here, bud. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. I uh, appreciate you having me on very much. Yeah, well, I, there's a couple things that immediately jump out to me. That uh, One of the reasons that we, we like having you on the show is that you are, you're unique in some sense. And then most of the people that we talk to who are writers, they are... They're writing theological works. They're writing scholarly works. They're, you know, they, they, they're writing nonfiction. And you're one of the few... Uh, who we've had on once or twice that actually work in this field of fiction. And uh, I think that's awesome. So if you wouldn't mind, maybe just jump off and tell us a little bit about wh- how those worlds sometimes kind of can, can kind of cross with one another. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, I have always had a bit of a creative bug. I mean, ever since I was a kid, uh, there's a story that my mom tells about my fourth grade teacher at a parent teacher conference uh, who said that, you know, she gave the class a writing assignment and most of the kids would like come up to her desk and ask, you know, they'd have a few sentences or a paragraph written and they would say, uh, you know, is this enough? You know, have I written enough? And she said that I would come to the desk and ask for more paper. <laughs> right. So, um, I've always kind of had that. Uh, I ended up, I was never really disciplined to disciplined enough to write something long form. And so in my teenage years, and it was kind of how I ended up in Nashville, I wanted to be a songwriter. Um, and so I, I was really high on music, writing a lot of songs, um, never really did anything, uh, notable as far as that. Um, but it, it, you know, it was kind of after I realized I didn't want to be in the music industry and had gotten married and was working full-time jobs and everything that, uh, I started writing again. And it was actually the, really the first thing that, that I sat down to write was what ended up being my, my debut novel, The Wages of Grace. Uh, and I gave up on it so many times because it's you know, such a daunting task writing, you know, 115,000 word novel as opposed to a three minute song. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there was just something that, that kept telling me like, Hey, even if nobody reads this, it's worth finishing. It's a story worth telling. And I learned from an early age. Um, I had a, a, a few really good high school English teachers and then a couple in college and my undergrad that really, um, motivated me to write. And, you know, kind of where those two worlds meet for me is, uh, the realization that yeah, artists don't create in a vacuum. And so right. I'm never sitting down to just say, uh, oh, hey, here's an interesting story. Like, it's always something that comes out of my heart. And, it, and it's always something that comes from where, where I am on my journey. And so, you know, The Wages of Grace was kind of a story as I was exiting evangelicalism, which was a, a, a pretty slow journey for me. But that was really a story just about what's the worst thing that a person could do and is forgiveness still available? And so yeah. I, you know, that was kind of on my journey as far as accepting like where I'm at now is you know, more of a universalist perspective. And, and really that idea that like, you know, there's nothing that a person could do that puts them beyond the reach of forgiveness or love. And so, uh, and then, and then recently I, published a short story uh, before I, I was with choir, uh, just just self-published um, called Camino Real. And then and that one is really kind of a almost a parable of my own spiritual journey and some of the, the hardships that I endured. I mean, I put the character in the story through a hell of a lot worse physically and such. But um, but just the realization at the end of the day that I was trying to please this cosmic Pharisee and that cosmic Pharisee will always be unpleasable. And so it yeah. was just the story of me letting that God go uh, and embracing the God that loves and forgives because that's who he is. Uh, and then I had another story that I put out that was called Cast No Shadow. Um, that is the story of, uh, of a, a military veteran who, um, you know, he's this great guy. He's a husband, he's a father, you know, he helps 
helps the people in his neighborhood, you know, donates money, does all sorts of good work, and is this, uh, you know, very well-respected person uh, in the daylight hours. And then at night, uh, he and his band of uh, guys that he was in the army with, they go and hunt drug gangs. Um, and it really, like, it was just a story of, like, kind of, the questioning of these ideas of like just violence and, um, and what happens when we allow violence to like corrode our souls and we end up passing that on to generation after generation. Um, and so again, these are just all things that I was learning about in my own journey that I was working through and, uh, you know, they, they work themselves into story. And then, um, the most two kind of recent stories that I've output, um, we're both kind of wrapped in the world of legal fiction to an extent. So yeah, that's, that's kind of where I'm at. And that's, that's just where, where the, the worlds meld. Sometimes I'll get an idea for a story and then it's not until, you know, I'm a third or half of the way in that I'm like, Oh, this is the story I'm telling. And it's about (laughs) something that I'm learning uh, or something that I'm wrestling with. So. Yeah. I find that that's something interesting about fiction writing, you know, not, not, and obviously not everyone writes their fiction like this, right? But um, I, I hear this a lot, specifically in fiction, uh, where uh, the writer, the author, is sometimes as surprised at where the story goes as we are when we get to read it. They're like, yeah, we, I had, when I was writing it, I had no idea that's where this was going. Yeah. Um, characters, you know, like, you know, I, I, can't, I can't think of any author off the top of my head right now, but you have authors who's like, I didn't realize I was going to have to kill that character off. Yeah, yeah. Or I was going to kill that character off and I decided, or I realized that that's, that's not the story. Yeah. And it's, it's just amazing how, how that works within fiction. It's really interesting. And it's weird for me too, because like my, my wife has asked me about this too, like, but like, I don't really see, I, I don't have a lot of descriptions of my characters. I try to throw in some guiding, but like, I don't see like faces when I write, you know, some people yeah. do, some people, they, they see like actors that they've cast in their mind as, as a particular role or something like that. I don't, I don't really, but one of the things that was really influential for me was, uh, there's, and I forget what book it's in, but I think it's Donald Miller that talks about, um, like, don't judge your characters. Yeah. And that was really important for me because, you know, early on you see characters or, you know, when you're drafting, when you're going through those things, doing things that you didn't expect or doing things that you don't like. But then it's like, okay, they're just working themselves out on page. And I don't really know where that, you know, where that comes from. But it's, yeah, nine times out of 10, it's like that was the way it was supposed to be, not what I had in mind originally. And the really scary thing is sometimes (laughs) I end up the characters that I, that I really like are not the ones that I end up identifying with by the end of it. And sometimes the really ugly things are the things I end up identifying with. And I'm like, Ooh, I see that. I see me on the page and that's not, you know, (laughs) that's not how I want to (laughs) be or that's not how I see myself. (laughs) But then it's like, you know, then, then it comes around and you're like, Oh, that's where that came from, you know? But yeah, I just, I try to be really honest with, with my work. I just try to be true to myself and, and, you know, like you mentioned, try to kind of true to the characters and true to where this ends up. And most of the time I have an idea, you know, sometimes it's kind of a rough idea. Most of the struggle for me is like how to connect the dots between where it starts and where it ends. Because, 
you know, you can do that in a really superfluous way. Like I hate movies where it's just like this great concept and then they scatter some stuff in there that like came out of nowhere and all of a sudden you have a resolution. Like I just hate that kind of stuff. So for me, like, you know, being honest and real about like how these things might actually happen in the real world has always been important. So yeah, I always find myself drawn to, uh, either, you know, movies or books or things of that nature where, where the characters are way more complex, right? And one of those things that I think that is interesting between what I would call Christian fiction and fiction that might be written by a Christian is how heavy-handed people are with, with that process, right? It's almost like some of these folks sat down to write a piece of Christian fiction and then everything got woven around that tale versus just telling their story and letting whatever gospel message is there. I, you know, I think that's sometimes the difference between, say, like a... I mean, I think C.S. Lewis is a little heavy-handed at times in in the Narnia books, and Tolkien denies flatly that there's anything allegorical, even though you can see the parallels, right? And so... And I'm way more I'm way more interested in Tolkien's work than Lewis's, although they're both, they're both fine. But um, do you find yourself drawn to more just tell a story? And then, you know, if there are parallels drawn by people, so be it. But that might not have necessarily been your intention. Yeah, no, I, uh, I'm firmly of the belief, like, I'm a huge Oasis fan, the band. Oh, yeah. And uh, Noel Gallagher, the, you know, the main songwriter in that band. And, you know, he's a living legend. But, like, he refuses to talk about what his work means. Like, if you ask him, yeah. what does this song mean? He's just like, what does it mean to you? Because that's really all that matters. You know, I can, I can put out on the page what comes out of my heart, but what somebody takes away from it is, is what matters to them. And so, uh, I don't know that I ever sit down and say, like, I want to write about this topic or, like I said, it mostly comes from like whatever I'm, whatever I'm wrestling with, uh, in my own, in my own life. And it, it does often take like a spiritual perspective for me. I mean, th- this last, the novella that, that came out in March of this year, the resurrection of Jesse Barrow that has a lot of, I wouldn't call it a work of like a legal fiction work, but I weaved a lot into that because I learned a lot of things about the country that I was told that I lived in (laughs) growing up um, in law school (laughs) and, you know, and how a lot of the, you know, a lot of the constitutional rights that, you know, we pride ourselves on as Americans and that kind of thing, like they're fairly modern inventions um, by progressive judges who read things into the Constitution that are not plainly there. Uh, doesn't mean they were wrong. In fact, I think in many cases they got it right. Um, but, you know, but then with that story, I, I had kind of set out with with some of that in mind. Um, and, and so I'll just tell you a little bit about it. So it, it, it's called The Resurrection of Jesse Barrow. Um, it takes place in like the deep south of Alabama in the early 1900s. And so my idea was kind of to poke at, uh, you know, this person that gets arrested and, you know, all of the rights that he did, that he would not have had in 1911 that we have now. Like, for instance, you know, the right to access counsel in a state proceeding, uh, you know, that didn't exist in 1911. Uh, the right not to be beaten into a confession did not exist in 1911. Uh, and so like, that's what I was really aiming at. Um, and what ended up happening was, uh, I had an opportunity to, to talk about race, which 
I've been really hesitant to do because I don't just want to be another white guy talking about race. And so um, that was really what became a little bit of a challenge for me. And so kind of what how it ended up working out was it was, again, a little bit of a parallel to my own, like waking up to uh, like I was raised, you know, fairly in a kind of conservative bubble in northeastern New Jersey, you know, um, and was kind of raised to believe that like issues of race were not that important. If we stopped talking about race, these issues would go away, those kinds of things. And like, you know, in the last 10 years or so, I've really woken up to the fact that like, oh, wow, like this goes way deeper than I knew. Um, and I'm really pretty ignorant on this topic. And so I think the resurrection of Jesse Barrow in a lot of ways is kind of, um, it's kind of analogous to my own waking up to, you know, there's a lot more here that's not as simple as I was led to believe. Yeah. When it's funny that you say that because I was trying to find a way to articulate kind of the way that John and I were both raised to talk about race, which was exactly what you just said. Like, listen, <laughs> yeah. if we just stop talking about it, it'll all right. go away, right? We're which making it in, worse in by talking about it. Like, yeah, which in essence is such a cop-out because it's basically like, if white people can hear about it less, we'll all feel much better about ourselves. Right, right. It, it, right. Yeah. If I couldn't think of a better definition of white privilege of being yeah. of being able to say, I'm just not going to talk about this anymore because it does not yeah. directly affect me. And therefore I have the option to go, eh. And as long as I can bury my head in the sand, it's it's okay. But when you talk about issues of of the law in particular, I think that's one one place that we've had folks on who've talked about, you know, criminal justice reform these ideals of equal access and uh, equal representation that um, I think there's a lot of people in the United States who think that's, that's the norm. And the fact of the matter seems to be that justice is not equal. Punishment's not certainly uniformly applied. Um, there's all kinds of inequalities and inequities in our criminal justice system that seem to criminalize people in the BIPOC community at a much higher level than, than folks like us. So that's something that you kind of tackle a little bit in some of this, this, this book a little bit? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, just, uh, you know, the, so the main character, and just to kind of give you a little background in the story, um, uh, which it was actually, I, I took a class uh, my last year in law school that was called, it was just wrongful convictions. And it was, you know, kind of a um, scholarly look at like what causes wrongful convictions, you know, what are the factors that lead to them and such. And then like, you know, how do we begin to um, to tackle that issue? And uh, the very first day, uh, Professor Tory Johnson um, at Belmont College of Law, one of my favorite professors, he told us about the very first exoneration that ever happened in the United States. Uh, it was in, I think, 1812. And it was a pair of brothers in Vermont who absolutely hated their brother-in-law. One day, the brother-in-law goes missing. Uh, like a year later, somebody in the town has a dream that he's buried underneath the brother's house, the brothers who hated him. And so apparently in 1812, this is how you got a search warrant. <laughs> you know, somebody just dreamed something. <laughs> uh, and so anyway, the two brothers uh, are convicted uh, of this crime. And uh, so anyway, there's a there's a twist at the end of the real story that if I told you, it would probably ruin my story. So, um, so my story was kind of based loosely on that. I moved the time frame up to 
little bit more modern times. But yeah, I do, in a sense, deal with the main character gets arrested for the murder of the mayor in town. And the main character is a white guy who just grew up dirt poor and he can't afford an attorney. And, you know, and at that time, um, until you went to trial in state court, you were not guaranteed. And particularly for a capital offense, like you weren't guaranteed counsel until you got to trial. And so all throughout interrogations, all through, you know, this waiting period, like if you couldn't afford an attorney, you were just out of luck. Wow. And one of the things that, that you still see in today's, um, today's system that is, that's so disheartening, because like you said, well, you know, it's a particular line that you see where like, poverty is punished is with bail the way that that system is set up you know if you're accused of a crime you know and your bond is set at a hundred thousand dollars or even ten thousand dollars uh and you can't afford that what ends up happening is people plead guilty to crimes that they didn't commit crimes that they should really defend at trial just because they can't sit in jail for four or six months awaiting trial because they're going to lose their job. They're going to lose their apartment. They're going to lose their family. Like, and so people end up just taking pleas just to get out of jail. Um, and you know, one of the things that, that kind of fires me up too is like a lot of people don't realize the amount of collateral consequences that attach with a guilty, with a conviction. I mean, you can't vote, you can't own a firearm, you can't, you know, there, I mean, there's employment consequences, there's literally thousands and thousands of collateral consequences that attach as soon as you plead guilty, even if it's to a crime you didn't commit, and you only plead guilty so you can get out of jail. Uh, So yeah, so it is a system, and, and in the United States, you know, I think in state court, it's like 92% of cases are resolved on plea bargains. It's even higher in the federal system. And so it's just this like churn them in, churn them out system where, yeah, like people's humanity gets lost. Uh, and, and additionally, if you have the money to bail out, you go home and you can defend yourself. You know, if you have the the ability to, to hire an attorney and, and take it to trial, like, uh, you know, that's a totally different situation. Yeah, the inequity is is it's pretty stark, you know. Um, and and never mind, you, then you get into issues also of how people are charged. Um, and I know that was a big issue, you know, especially, it, it still is, but I remember first hearing about it in the 80s when white guys would get caught with cocaine and a black guy gets caught with 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 crack and they get sentenced very differently. Suddenly the white, you know, the... Yeah. the the lawyer with a gram of Coke is going, you know, to community service and the guy with a rock of crack is going to do hard time. And so we have jails filled with people on petty drug offenses. And then you can go further and talk about the corporatization of prisons in America and find out that there's all kinds of financial incentive to overcharge, to, you know, to, to give people the maximum sentences and keep them in, you know, incarcerated inside a system. But yeah, there's, there's a ton there. It, it sparked something for me anyway, when you talk about, uh, we did briefly offline before we started the concept of restorative justice versus punitive justice. How 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 do those roads intersect then too? Because I know inside of our legal system, it seems very few people are interested in any kind of restorative justice. It all it all seems to be punitive. Yeah, and I think um, I think the major 
misunderstanding there or the major issue that why people are so reserved about the idea of restorative justice is, is a misunderstanding of what restorative justice is. Um, because when a lot of people hear that, they just assume like, oh, you're going to send the guilty guy to counseling or you're going to, you know, you're going to send him to rehab or whatever, and he's not going to be punished or he's not going to. Um, when the concept is actually much more focused on how do we do better for victims of crime? Um, right. And so I actually, uh, in, in The Resurrection of Jesse Barrow, uh, which is actually a collection of some of my works, um, I've got my, my essay from my law school sentencing law class. Uh, in law school, they call it a rigorous writing requirement. And uh, it was rigorous. <laughs> um, but I wrote mine on restorative justice. And part of what I, you know, what's important to me is, you know, n- not only do we have a problem with offenders, um, we also have a problem with the way that victims are treated in the system. Because, you know, if you think about it, if you're a victim of a violent crime, you know, for instance, you get out of your car, you know, to go to work in the parking lot and you're violently assaulted by somebody, the first time we hear from you is when we put you on the stand to tell your story. So you have to sit there in court facing the person that did this to you, you have to tell your story. You're, you're, you know, answering honestly, like all these things that happened to you, you're having to dig this trauma up again. And then a good defense attorney gets up there next and his job, which this is not nothing against defense attorneys. I hope to be one six months from now, once I, when I pass the bar, but a good defense attorney, his job is to make you sound not credible. Like to make the people in the courtroom think, no, it didn't happen to you or it didn't happen like you said it did or, you know, whatever. And so like we re-traumatize victims uh, in this whole process. And then, you know, at the end of the day, there's no other, there's no other steps for the victims. It's like, tell your story, get beaten up, and then that's it. And what's even worse is for a lot of people, like for instance, this example, you know, you get, you get you know, really beaten, you know, outside of your, your workplace or whatever, you spend three months in the hospital and then the guy pleads guilty to a simple assault and he's back on the street, you know, (laughs) practically before you're out of the hospital. Like there's no justice in that for the victim either. And so the concept of restorative justice is to put the humanity back in the system to number one, like allow victims to tell us what justice looks like. Uh, and then kind of as a community to have a situation where we can put our arms around them and like walk them through some sort of healing. You know, there's no set definition of what restorative justice is, but there are loads of practices that are being used in countries around the world. And, and you know, um, a lot of it is like a learning experience as we come. But there's a lot of evidence that the people who the victims who participate in restorative justice programs they feel less victimized. They feel less afraid of the person that hurt them. They feel like there's more closure than those that just go through the criminal justice system. And it's because in restorative programs, we really give the victims an opportunity to have their voice heard to like, like I said, tell us what you need, tell us what healing looks like. Um, and sometimes one of the things that I really like, one of the programs, um, is like a, like a surrogate 
meeting where, you know, for instance, if you, if you had your purse snatched from you on the street, you might meet with somebody, not the guy who did it to you necessarily, but somebody else who took somebody's purse and you get to tell that person, this is how it felt when it happened to me. Uh, and that person gets to connect the consequences of their actions with a real human being. They get to hear about some, how somebody felt violated. They get to hear about the pain somebody went through. And so it has the potential to like alter their course. And at the same time, that surrogate offender gets to talk about their life, about like, this is how I was raised where, you know, I had, I didn't have an education. I didn't, you know, these things happened to me. And so for the victim, it allows them to feel like, oh, I'm not just the victim of some random, you know, assault or, or theft or whatever, like this is, there were reasons this person felt like they had to do this. Um, and so I think it does offer a lot of opportunity for healing on both parts. Um, and it, you know, the programs that I have, have read about that I, that I really think that we should look into much more seriously in the United States. They're completely voluntary. They're still under the supervision of the court. Uh, and so like, we're not forcing anybody to forgive. Forgiveness doesn't even come into the equation. You know, like we're not asking victims to forgive, but what I like Howard Zare, who is kind of known as the father of restorative justice in, in this setting, uh, talks about how restorative justice can create the atmosphere where forgiveness can happen. And again, it's if we want it to. It, 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 it piques my, my interest in many ways. Part of that comes goes back to what you talked about with your with your work, uh, Wages of Grace. When you yeah. talk about is there a scenario where we, you know, where we consider that people are beyond the reach, right, right, of being fixed or forgiven or or restored in some way? And it reminded me of um, Capon's book. Um, I think it's between noon and three, where he tells yeah. an extended parable of of a person who is um, actively involved in an adulterous affair. And they're confessing this crime <laughs> to this priest who's not, not immediately telling them, stop the affair, do this. He's like, he's, he's taking a very hands off approach to like, well, let's, 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 let's talk this out. And so it, it, it immediately takes away that knee jerk reaction of, of casting judgment on someone's actions, trying to, trying to paint everything in very broad strokes. And that's what it sounds like. That's the difficult part, isn't it? Because, because the, uh, the place we always want to go is that there's somebody who's right and there's somebody who's wrong. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying all of this because to me, this is, this is, this is the beauty of good fiction is it, is it brings you into complex characters. It brings you to a place where people aren't just completely great or completely horrifying. You find yourself sympathizing with people who are less than sympathetic just because you find there's layers to their, to their character that, okay, that, that don't just fit. So I, I love that. And that's why I think, uh, this, the, the stuff that you're writing and things like that are, are important for us because um, they do reveal some more complexity than I think we get a lot of the time. Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, I'm, I'm drawn to those, those same types of characters too. I mean, one of my favorite, you know, TV shows is uh, uh, Breaking Bad. You know, I mean, you look at that right. situation with, with Walt, with Walt uh, how like y- you end up really despising him but at the same time you feel for him. Uh, right. and, and like, I think you're exactly right. And that, that's part of, that's part of what drew me to criminal defense work and to going to law school later in life than a lot of people do. Um, was, yeah, this idea that everybody's a human being. 
even people who have done terrible things are human beings. And it doesn't take, I mean, if you're, if you're on a local group on Facebook or something like that and some crime happens in your area, like it's always shocking to me to see like, People want to bring public hangings back and, you know, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. lock this guy up and throw. I mean, I, I remember reading one time about a case in, in my area where where somebody somebody actually said about the defendant in this case that he's not human and he, he doesn't have the right to breathe our air. Right. And, you know, to me, that was shocking. But at the same time, it, it makes a lot of sense. You know, I live in the Nashville area, you know, kind of the, the buckle of the Bible belt, as you, as you call it. Um, so I guess it makes, it makes a bit of sense when you think of it coming from a place of like a, uh, I've got restorative on my mind, but, uh, retributive God, you know, a God who is willing to throw people away, a God who is willing to smite human beings. Like if that's the God you believe in, then like, yeah, you do. Th- you do throw people away. Oh yeah, and, because uh, you're just at that point. You're just an extension of the arm of God, right? You're yeah. just doing what you perceive God to do. To do yeah. less would be to somehow to fail God in this. Yeah, yeah, it's not. And it's and it's not to say that that people don't deserve punishment. It's not to say people don't deserve incarceration. I think we can do a lot. We can do incarceration a lot better. But you know, it's not to say that like somebody should skate on the consequences of their actions at all. But it is to say that uh, you know the person sitting there is still a human being, and you know, just like I mentioned earlier, you know, an artist doesn't create in a vacuum. You know, our actions don't happen in a vacuum either. Right, um, right. And so, exactly. uh, you know, that was kind of like I said, what drew me to want to do criminal defense work in the first place was, you know, you have a courtroom, you have a town, you have a county, whatever, of people who hate this particular person. I want to be the person that stands in that person's corner. Mm. You know, I believe there's something, uh, you know, there's a sacred calling in that. And like, and I, you know, and, 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 you know, we haven't really gotten into my, you know, my, my spiritual journey. Um, I mean, I, I would say I'm an atheist probably three days a week. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, I'm at the point where like I, I'm comfortable believing because I choose to believe and not because I'm intellectually convinced of, you know, certain things. Um, but the story of Jesus and the, and the person of Jesus is still very captivating for me. And so my point was just being, I think if, if you look around the courtroom, you know, and you want to ask where Jesus is, I think he's probably at the defendant's table, <laughs> you know, not, yeah. that, not that he's not concerned with justice. Um, but you know, we don't get a lot of, you don't get a lot of mercy in the system and you certainly don't get a lot of dignity. And so I think being the person that's able to stand there with with that human being as a reminder of this human being's dignity and worth, something I want to give my life to. Now you guys can check back yeah. with me in 10 years and see how that's going. <laughs> yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll check back with you in six months and see how you feel about the bar. Yeah. <laughs> like, screw this, man. I'll just be a, I'll just be a paralegal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it, it, yeah, it's, it's so it's I'm John, you have a question. I, I know I just keep talking. So no, I, yeah. I don't really have a question. I was just uh, more of a comment that, you know, 
we are told that this country is is a Christian nation, and that we are raised on Christian. Yeah, I know we're <laughs> raised on Christian values, but we know this is that this is not necessarily the truth. That this this country is not necessarily based on any kind of Christian values, and that, you know. Each side can give you quote after quote as to why this is true or not true. But one of the things that just seems so hypocritical, I guess, is that if, if we are supposedly a Christian nation, which we are, we are following this, the, following this man called Jesus, who, for all intents and purposes that I can see, is someone who is showing us over and over again a restorative justice, not a punitive justice. That he is, he is dismantling this idea that going after people because of mistakes they made and putting them in whatever prison or putting them to death or whatever um, is not the way. But we are so happy to fall right back into this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and forget everything that this man Jesus said to the point where we are willing to put people to death because, like you said, they're not human. They don't deserve to breathe our air, and it's 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 such a it's such a weird dichotomy for me that I I, just, I can't wrap my head around how how easily we've lost our way. If, if any of that makes sense. No, absolutely. I think I think uh, yeah, I think it comes from from that certain um, that certain understanding of God where where like. God's justice, God's mercy is at the service of his justice and not the other way around. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, it, you see, uh, I mean, the, the whole, the whole war on drugs, yeah. you know, where we, where we really tried to criminalize, we, I mean, you know, essentially we criminalized people who were suffering from addiction, uh, as opposed to like serving those people. Um, and so, yeah, like when you, <laughs> when you, how would Jesus have handled that? <laughs> you know, maybe a little bit differently than, you know, just putting you behind bars and locking away the key, you know, and, and all this to, to say too, like there are a certain class of people that for whatever reason, you know, psychological, you know, whatever, they're literally just too dangerous to be walking the streets. Like, I mean, Ed Kemper, he's still yeah, alive. Yeah, the enough. co-ed killer. Like, yeah. please don't yeah. let Ed Kemper out. Like, I don't care. I don't care. Ed Kemper is six foot nine. I don't care if he's 80. Please don't let him out. You know, now yeah. again, that's not to say we can't do incarceration. We can't do punishment better. Um, and I think right. that that may be a little bit of where, of where this kind of heads in this country, because I think that to that, to the, um, like the punishment retribution, crowd i think that that's a little bit more palatable than you know like a full-on right off the bat restorative approach which again wouldn't work in all situations wouldn't necessarily happen in all situations but uh, but again like the idea that that we could because right now you know uh, prisons around the country i mean they're just breeding grounds for criminality and it's right again it's not necessarily because like pe- people who end up in prison are just people with bad character who are unfixable it's because like nothing happens in a vacuum and so when you put somebody in a room with people who are really good at 
what they do, you're going to learn from that. And then when you get out on the street after who knows how many years, you know, you don't know how to work an iPhone. You don't know how to, you know, I mean, there, there are people that, you know, they've been incarcerated so long that they can't figure out how to fill out a job application because it's online. Uh, and so, you know, and then who's going to, you know, not many places will hire them for a, a position that they can actually live off of. And so I think that whole, you know, not only is it, is it diametrically opposed to what Jesus taught. I mean, it's in so many ways, it's diametrically opposed to common sense and what, what works and what doesn't work, uh, for a society. But again, I do think there is that element, like we talked about earlier of like Americans and I, and, and I say this because Americans are my people and like, and I am, I am one. Uh, and so that's just when I see things in myself that I, you know, think are worthy of criticism, but like white Americans in particular, again, it goes back to like, it's just easier not to think about these people. Right. Exactly. It's just easier that they're put away. We're safe from them. I don't have to worry about it in my neighborhood. And we don't think of the ripple effects through our, my community, through the, the offenders community, their family, the victim's family, the, you know, we don't think about that because it's just, right. it's more convenient and less painful not to, you know, because if we really thought about it, we would have to do something about it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Well, and it, I think, you know, I, I can only speak for myself, but I, you know, I don't have to look back very far into my past to where I was a, I had a completely different response to all of this. Yeah. Oh, for um, sure. You know, I was raised, I was raised very conservative, you know, very, in a very white community. So it was super easy for me to say, well, obviously if they were caught doing a crime and they were put in jail for it and they were found guilty, that they should be punished to the utmost of the law because that's how the system works. And it, I don't have to go back very far in my own life to say that I, I agreed with that a hundred percent. And then, it, but it doesn't take much intellectual honesty to start looking at these cases individually and realizing that there's a lot of nuances to why they were arrested, why they went to court, how their, how the legal system didn't help them through the process. And like you said, their best option is to plead guilty to say maybe a, and this is in air quotes, a lesser crime so they can get out of jail. But now they're a felon. They can't get a job. They can't vote. They can't own a firearm, which that's a completely different, you know, scenario for me. Um, you know, second amendment issues aside. But like you said, then they're going to go out and try to find a job. So they can keep their apartment, they can keep their car, they can keep their family together. And none of that works because in some way, shape or form, whoever they're looking to get a job from finds out they're a felon. They're, you know, they're not a very good candidate, right? Again, in quotes for the job. So they end up going back to what they know how to do, which is take care of them and their family in maybe not the most legal way. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you, if you think too, just about like employment consequences, for instance, like in a lot of states, if you have a conviction, you can't get a job that requires state licensure. So like you can't be a barber, <laughs> you know, like we're not talking like, you know, serving on the Supreme Court. It's like it's meaningful work that people do that you're prevented from. 
by the system of collateral consequences. Um, well, yeah. Think of those things you can't do. Like, uh, get, probably can't get a CDL. Yeah. So you, can't, yeah. you probably can't drive a truck. You probably can't get, you know, you know, um, general contractor's license or. Yeah. You can't be an electrician. Like all those you things can't. you probably like, think about. Yeah. All those things that would be like the next step up for somebody who maybe didn't have the opportunity to go to college. You go, yeah, oh, yeah but there's, and then we always say this stuff, don't we? Like, man, there are plenty of good paying jobs out there for people who are interested in working in a trade. And then you've taken all of that off the table. Yeah. Well, yeah, because also a lot of these, a lot of these trade jobs, you have to be bonded, right? Yeah, yeah. bonded, uh, licensed. I mean, you don't just go, you just don't get to go, you know, you know, work on someone's plumbing without being a licensed plumber, and you probably don't get into those unions. I, and I actually, I read, and I think I included it in that in the paper that's in the resurrection of Jesse Barrow in that in that collection in Louisiana <laughs> that there were there were uh, inmates like violent inmates that were um, basically trained on like HVAC and like air conditioning repair and such. And so like when the air conditioning in the prison went out, they would send the inmates up there to fix it. But if they got out, they couldn't do that job because they had a conviction. So it was like, wow, what was the point of all that other than free labor for the prison system? You know? Right. Yeah. Well, and it's all, I'm sure it's all, it's all operated under the guise of this is now our, because that that goes back to the more classic argument of the prison system, which is rehabilitation versus right, right versus punishment. Right. So we are we just trying to punish these people? Or are we trying to find a way to rehabilitate them? And so we afford them, you know, opportunities to better themselves and go to school and maybe maybe learn a trade. And then when they get out, they find they're still behind that that eight ball of okay, fine, you know how to do this, but you'll never practice in this right. until you can get that that conviction expunged somehow. Yeah. Um, I have it, it's frustrating because I've seen. I've seen movies and I've watched and I've read, I've read stories of people who have, you know, they've, they've come out of, especially a, a longer term incarceration and just the almost impossible uphill climb. And you haven't even gotten in, we haven't even gotten into how people are treated by say parole officers and the parole system. I have um, really good friends of mine who um, were both at one point, probably about eight or nine years ago, they were both uh, very heavily addicted to methamphetamine and they were manufacturing. And they both got arrested, spent a lot of time in jail, I think four or five years. And then when they got out, their, <laughs> their troubles had just begun because all of the fines that get assessed have to be paid. That's part of the, t- the terms and conditions. So they were paroled, you know, a little early from their sentences, but spent the next several years working two and three jobs to pay, to pay the courts back so that they could fight. Because even if their term had run up, I think if they'd, even if they'd fulfilled their term on their parole, they wouldn't technically be released until they'd paid tens of thousands, maybe even close to $100,000 in fines. So it's a system that I understand. I, I guess I try to be, I try to be open-minded and say, I understand the point. I think trying, to, uh, but I think, I think people, I think people think, <laughs> when we say the word think <laughs> one more time, I think people assume that, um, that, that, the threat of a large punishment is enough to disincentivize this, right? This is going to be the thing that, that, um, that, that, that warns people off of a life of crime, so to speak, but it doesn't seem to work that way, right? I mean, that, that's been the argument for the death penalty all, all these years. It's like, well, if, if we just, all we have to do is start publicly hanging people and people will stop murdering. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so, man. Yeah, no, I think you're, I think you're right. There's, uh, you know, there's kind of a, a threefold, approach to like how you know how i mean and i think it works in most you know situations but like in, from a criminal justice standpoint of like you know you have the the 
potential reward. You have to consider the consequences of the action, but then you also have to consider the possibility of being caught. Uh, and so, you know, for instance, th- this, my final semester, um, I wrote a piece on, on white collar crime and why we're seeing such a huge uptick in victimization, uh, for white collar crime. I mean, it was something uh, statistic I read that's like 25%, like one in four American households will be victimized, will be a victim of white collar crime of, of some kind. Um, and particularly when you're talking about like high level financial frauds like your Bernie Madoffs and Enrons and all that, we've increased the sentences drastically to where like if you're if you're convicted, you will serve much more time now than you would have in 1985, for instance, for the same exact crime. However, people don't feel like they're being caught. <laughs> like so you haven't so you haven't even you know, when you're talking about, I could potentially have a hundred million dollars out of this scheme. If I get caught, uh, you know, I'll serve the rest of my life in prison, no question. But nobody's getting caught, you know. And so, like, <laughs> and so, you know, that the whole that whole part of the equation just drops out. And again, you know, from a from a, a you know, I guess sociological point of view, like Americans tend to be much more concerned about. Uh, feeling safe in their own neighborhood than they do about being the victim of financial fraud, even though uh, white collar crime, I mean, costs hundreds of billions of dollars more than street crime does to the American economy every single year. Uh, Most of our resources go to fighting street level crime. Yeah. And, And again, there's a privilege aspect of that too. I mean, part of it has to do with, you know, white, higher level white collar crime. Those cases are incredibly complex and incredibly expensive to prosecute. But if we're just doing like a cost benefit analysis, it would seem, you know, (laughs) like keeping the economy from melting down like it did in 2008 might be who would want to concentrate. Yeah. But yeah, if you cast, if cast too, not too wide a net though, you get those, (laughs) you get those same guys caught up in it though. Right. I mean, the other side of that coin is that those people who are engaged in that kind of activity, if, and when they are caught, um, they can generally afford better legal counsel. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And they can, they can, they can, they can probably plead that down to something manageable. And And a lot of times the upper level, white collar criminals never actually face anything because number one, the corporation settles with, with the department of justice, or they just throw lower level employees who are also involved under the bus. Uh, and it's kind of a, you know, a, a race to the courthouse situation in that regard, as far as, uh, immunity and that kind of thing. But it proves the point though, that so little of this is prosecuted that a name like Bernie Madoff stands out so well. Yeah. Like, yeah, we all know that one because because he was one. They made exam they made an example of Bernie Madoff, and they, as yeah. well, they probably should have. But the reason you can think of one guy is because how many have just sort of slipped through the cracks? Yeah, yeah, and I mean, you know, with with the incredible amount of law enforcement resources that we've put towards it, and again, the cost to society and everything, and yet, like, still, I think in the last twenty years, eight of the ten biggest Ponzi schemes ever have occurred and like who knows yeah. how many are out there that haven't been uncovered yet um but that's the thing is like people yeah, I mean, people feel like they can get away with it and you know and and i guess that's and that goes into the whole discussion you know in a wider 
uh, lens is like, you know, you have people who are literally bankrupting companies. They're, you know, stealing your grandma's, you know, pension and social security and, you, you know, causing huge havoc across, you know, industries. And yet we're stopping and frisking some teenager on the street. Right. You know, for like literally for no reason. And, and, you know, we think that's what, where the priorities should be. So, yeah. Yeah. And we, and we've, and we've left the largest Ponzi scheme scheme in the world alone, which I would say is the church. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't mean hey. it to be funny. I do think that there are, there are people in this, in this country operating churches on a criminal level. Yeah. Operating under the guise of, you know, spiritual, you know, religious freedom and liberty who are literally bankrupting families, um, yeah. stealing from their flocks and not being held accountable because, you know, for whatever reason, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, oh, they're, yeah. do, they're doing it for the Lord. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Then that's okay. It's voluntarily <laughs> given, you know, I mean, that's well, right. And even, even if that volunteer, even if that voluntary status is, is coerced as hell. Yeah, not that was meant tongue in cheek, by the way. <laughs> so under the threat of going to hell, you need to provide me with an income so I can buy a Mercedes. <laughs> but isn't it interesting too? Because you you look at that what you said about we've thrown so much money at this, right? From illegal, you know, the the uh, the government has, has spent lots of money prosecuting these cases and stuff. But haven't we done the same thing with the drug war? I mean, haven't we taken billions, oh, yeah. or maybe trillions of dollars at this point in resources and leveled them against? Um, drug addiction. Yeah. And that hasn't really worked out well, has it? Hasn't done a damn thing except destroy yeah. lives that were probably, in my estimation, many of them were, were, were in the process of being destroyed already. And you've just taken marginalized people and further marginalized them. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I mean, I've been, I've been working, you know, as a, as a law clerk during my time in law school. And I mean, yeah, there's people that it, it, it's, shocking that they made it as far as they did uh you know knowing their background their childhood and the way that they were brought up and yeah and and it is like i said earlier i mean it's it's this whole issue of like criminalizing addiction as opposed to actual criminal behavior you know and now like we're getting we're getting to the point where you know you have states like tennessee that have adopted laws where like for instance you know and, and they're with good intentions, they're aimed at, you know, drug dealers. So like, for instance, if you sell somebody drugs that's laced with fentanyl and they overdose, you can be prosecuted for murder. But kind of the unintended consequences is, you know, you're having people who are using drugs and like casually sharing them with friends, you know, those kinds of things. And a friend overdoses and now that person is charged with murder. Right. Um, you know, and so again, it's like, you're not really going after the people who, or at least the consequences aren't the people who are profiting from this system of, of, um, you know, feeding addiction. It, it ends up being the people who are suffering from the addiction that end up in these situations. And I mean, that's one of the things too, I, you know, with the whole war on drugs, I mean, this is just kind of a theory that I've, that I've posited, but like, you know, we as Americans love to talk about economics and we love to talk about supply and demand. Um, I mean, the, the issue with drugs coming across our border would not be an issue if there wasn't demand for it. And so like, at some point, if you want to go back 
I mean, where did this all really explode? Maybe like the 1960s, if you want to talk about that. Like, what what was it about American culture that at the time we were like, we need to forget, we need to we need to blank out and not feel like you think of the night, you know, I mean, especially in conservative circles, like we're taught, you know, the 1950s and 60s are like the golden age of America, you know, where everything was simpler and families were families and men were men and we all went to church. And it's like, yeah, like what, why were we trying to escape so hard? What was it about the culture at the time that, you know, that set us on this path? And so like, that's why I always just say to people like, you know, Usually, however well you feel like you've figured an issue out, it's much more complex. <laughs> and yes. so when you look back at that time period, for instance, yeah, like again, getting to my point now where I think, you know, we're several generations on to these like cycles of addiction. Um, but uh, yeah, going back in American history, I mean, you can even go back to like prohibition uh, about we were trying to get you know, trying to get rid of alcohol because of what it was wreaking on this culture. But like, you know, we never stopped to ask the question, like, why do we have an alcohol problem? Uh, and it's, it's the same thing now. I think it's, it's, we have not yet asked the question, like, why do we have a drug problem? And because we haven't wanted to look at ourselves that closely. Very true. Well, and I, I think, I think there's been a, we, we have create, we have created a monster that now needs to be fed. And so kind of going off of what Nat said, I, not, and I was not aware of this, so this is in, information that I didn't know, that serving time for, say, a crime of manufacturing methamphetamines uh, at, the end of your, at the end of your time that you're in jail, you still owe this fine. Um, I, I was not aware of that. This is, this is new information to me. So first of all, I, I would say that the uh, prison leasing system is alive and well in this country. Uh, that it, it has not gone away. And we know who exactly who that is directed at. The BIPOC community who is going to have the hardest time finding any kind of gainful employment outside of when they leave prison. They are put right back into a scenario where they are surrounded by the same, the same shit that caused them to end up in prison for probably a, a very small crime, like being caught with a, a small amount of drugs. So now we have a system that says, you need to pay us back these tens of thousands of dollars, but we're not going to let you find a job. We're not going to help you find a job. You're going to have to now go back into the system that worked for you. And you're going to end up with some drug lord who's been more than willing to have you sell their drugs, maybe give you a little bit on the side to cover your addiction that probably never went away. And now you... Like you said, you end up selling something that's laced with fentanyl. Someone dies. Now you're in now you're in prison for murder, and now you're there for the rest of your life on death row. It's just a system that is so broken that who in that community would ever feel like they they have a way out? Ever it crosses so many lines too, because you know you see it in the like poor rural white communities as well. Yeah, um, you know you you see those those same cycles. And that's why I said, like, I don't think this country has yet really looked itself, looked at itself in the mirror. Um, because I think a lot of, a lot of where these issues stem from, it has to do with something very, um, very dark and corroded in our own soul. And because we like to see ourselves as 
Christian nation, uh, you know, this shining hill, you know, this beacon, uh, you know, shining beacon on the hill or whatever you want to call it. You know, we like to see ourselves as Israel, you know, that, you know, we're, we're the ones that are, we're God's chosen people that, that we tend to think we can't have these things or they, or they don't matter anymore. And I don't, I don't know that there's anything, anything that can happen, but for that to corrode uh, future generations. I mean, the good news is, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a total nihilist. I, I do think like in a lot of senses, we are waking up to some of these problems. I mean, I think you're seeing it in the church or in the exodus from the church. You know, I think that you're, you're fine. You know, honestly, like Netflix, HBO have had a huge impact. I mean, documentaries like making a murder and the staircase and, you know, that have like brought some of these things into the popular consciousness um, have changed the way that we view the legal system and, and hopefully will, you are seeing like, for instance, uh, in Philadelphia and some countries around or some bigger cities around the country where you are seeing um, DAs being elected on platforms of reform where they're going back, looking at cases where, you know, they knew things weren't right, where there was evidence that wasn't right, where, you know, um, misconduct took place, whatever it is. And they're, you know, they're actively working to see if, you know, there are exonerations that need to happen. You know, you have the Innocence Project, you have people that are, um, you know, advocating. And so I do think that that will continue to kind of swell. Um, and, and I think that there is a movement towards like, you know, looking, looking at ourselves in the mirror and, and kind of like what, you know, what I said about the, the resurrection of Jesse Barrow, that story, just this awakening to like, you know, this runs a lot deeper and it's much more complex than I realized. And, you know, I really haven't walked in another person's shoes. So maybe instead of plugging my ears, like we talked about earlier and saying, Oh, I wish this would all just go away. Maybe I should actually listen and see how I can become an advocate for somebody else if I'm in the position to do so. That's awesome. And I, and, and I think a really good way to approach that is like you have done. And cause I, I really think sometimes we, 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 we assimilate some of this material better in story form. And so, you know, usually if you can find a, a narrative that's compelling, you can get people to kind of look beyond their own biases and prejudices and see something deeper. Um, cause usually what we get is very black and white, very sort of two dimensional caricatures of people in the media, especially. And it's easy to paint somebody as just the bad guy and someone is just the good guy or someone is just the perpetrator and someone else is just the victim. And you know, that there's layers to all that stuff that's deep. So the, the new book, I'm, I'm ordering it on Amazon right now, by the way. Well, thank um, you. So <laughs> I'm going to grab that. Um, we don't like to plug. <laughs> We don't like to plug Amazon anymore than we have to, but there it is. Um, yeah, you can, but, yeah, you can I, go to a go to your local bookstore and ask for it. Uh, they should be able to order I, it. I live it. in a literary wasteland. It's unlikely. <laughs> now, if you live in a town or a municipality or a village or something with a with a, a, borough. With a decent local bookstore, um, by all means, man, go 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 uh, patronize those stores. But all things being equal, if you just want to get a hold of it, it's available all kinds of other places as well. And I think it's an exciting thing that we, like I said, you're one of only a couple folks that we've had on the podcast who this is the medium you work in is, is, is fiction. And I think it's an interesting tool 
to explore some of these issues in a, in a little more in-depth way than sometimes just a scholarly work or a you know, piece of nonfiction. So I think it's great, man. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm honored to, uh, to have been here and, uh, I, I, I try to write fiction that I would want to read as well. Uh, so like, you know, I get bored easily. So hopefully <laughs> my books don't do that to people, but uh, I try to keep, you, you know, try to keep the pace pretty well and, uh, you know, hopefully keep you guessing a little bit too. So. That's awesome, man. Well, we appreciate you coming out. Thanks for being on the podcast. Make sure and check out all the Brandon's stuff on all the social, all the interwebs and all the social medias. And um, <laughs> sounds great, doesn't it, John? I'm going to pour myself the a glass of Irish whiskey and uh, see if I can't nice. uh, see the rest of this day. Actually, I'll show you some of the new whiskey I just came home with. Woo-hoo, it's not Irish, right. but it's good stuff. But, um, anyway, man, just thanks for thanks for hanging out. We appreciate it. Yeah. Um, you, are the, you are the bomb. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash this is not church, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.